as I've already mentioned, we are stopping a week early in our study of 1 Corinthians. We are in the middle of 1 Corinthians 12, and we're looking to begin our Lenten series this year on the book of Lamentations, uh, and have bumped that up one week, and hence the change in schedule. And so when we come back on the other side of Easter, uh, we will jump back into 1 Corinthians. But today, we're taking a look at the book of Lamentations, and we will be for the next five weeks, we'll be considering the five chapters of this book, each of which is a poem of its own. And I say poem because these chapters are written in very particular ways, at least chapter one, uh, two, and uh, four are written in that uh, that acrostic form in which each uh verse is given a you know a letter of the alphabet and so it works too if you could read this in the hebrew the first verse is a and the second verse is b begins with the letter b and so forth and hence the 22 uh verses because there's 22 letters in the alphabet and so you see that in chapter one and two uh and so there's a pattern to this there's a poem the 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 author of this letter of this book is writing poetically and beautifully about something very dark and heavy and difficult. Lamentations is often uh, uh, attributed to Jeremiah, though there's no uh, direct evidence of that. Uh, we just hear in the Chronicles that uh, Jeremiah had given uh, a book of laments to the king, and so it's assumed that that's what this is, and oftentimes most, if people had to attribute it to somebody, it would be Jeremiah. And since he is, in fact, the weeping prophet, uh, it, it, it seems fitting that it would be uh, Jeremiah, but maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And for our uh, discussions, that's, it's not relevant. I, it's so relevant, I just wanted to mention that to you. But what we have here is, when you, when you enter into a book called Lamentation, uh, uh, lament, sorrow, uh, weeping, um, it's kind of like okay, I see where these next five weeks are going. This is going to be a this is going to be a heavier uh, 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 topic that we're going to be on. And indeed, you would be right. You would you would make a right assumption if you thought that. Um, and I I and I'm always struck when we have the reading of God's word, something like Lamentations, and then I say, "This is the word of the Lord," and we all respond, "Thanks be to God." Uh, you know, after a after a heavy and difficult text. Um, and yet, and yet, I, it reminds me of why we have that in the liturgy. Because it is very important that we be able to read Lamentations and say, this is the word of the Lord, and respond, thanks be to God. Um, it would not be our natural instinct to read difficult things like this and say, thank you, God. But that's exactly what we ought to do. You know, I didn't choose to put lamentations in the Bible. I'm not reaching for some dark text somewhere. Let's 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 spend some time on a heavy thing. It's in the scriptures. It's here for us. The, 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 the crying out of Israel, the crying out of the prophet, the crying out of this, this uh, personified city, Jerusalem, Lady Zion, as she is in our in our own text, you know, Zion. Uh, it, Jerusalem gets personified and speaks in the first person as, as, as a woman, as, as a princess, now made a widow. Her cries, her complaints, her questions 
get lifted to God and God returns them back to us in the scriptures and makes them, well, started them, but nonetheless gives them to us as his word to us. Our word to him, Israel's word to him, comes back to us as God's word to us to learn, to sit under. We need to sit under the word of God given to us in the book of Lamentations. Inasmuch as we need to sit under the word of God in those happy and joyful passages of celebration, we need that as well. <clears throat> so it's good for us to hear a heavy thing like this and say, thanks be to God. But that's what we'll be faced with, that tension. When you're going to read a hard thing like we've read sometimes in the prophets where you know God speaks and here, here we, we have Israel speaking. But we oftentimes have God speaking in ways that make us cringe. We're not used to hearing God talk like this to his people. Um, and then to say, thanks be to God. But again, it's good for us to do and to hear. <clears throat> so that'll be the next five weeks that we're on preparing our hearts for that celebration of a horrible thing. The celebration of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That day, that Friday, which is called Good Friday. And yet it's the worst Friday in the history of Fridays. And yet the best Friday in the history of Fridays. It's the darkest day in the history of the world. And yet the day in which the light shines most brightly. It is, it is this beautiful coming together of the darkness of sin and judgment and yet the brightness of love and mercy and salvation. And it's good to prepare our souls for that. And hence, this short but extended study on lamentations. So why all the lamenting? What's the, what's the story? What's going on here in the book of Lamentations? Well, if you are able to read along, and I know sometimes when you first hear something read, <clears throat> not always easy to catch what's going on there. I, I do encourage you to go back and read it. Read it read it again. Read it slowly. Read through the book of Lamentations multiple times um, over the next several weeks get, so that you're able to kind of knead it into your into your soul. And, and hence, when I'm preaching, you're, you're in that Lamentations world. Well, what's happening is Israel, uh, uh, Judah, I should say, be more specific, the, the kingdoms now have been split. Israel, which was a united kingdom, right? The people of God. This was going to be the means by which all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. The descendants of Abraham. Th this was going to be a city set on a hill. And yet, in her rebellion, she has been ripped apart. And, and now we've had two kingdoms, a northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel went off the rails pretty quickly and stayed on a trajectory of rebellion against God. And prophet after prophet after prophet uh, was coming to the nation of Israel, calling them to repent and warning them that if they did not, then judgment would follow. Meanwhile, down south in the kingdom of Judah, a smaller kingdom, uh, um, but the, the kingdom where Jerusalem was, they kind of they were holding on to the capital city, and, and that's great because it meant they had the, the temple and the sacrifices were all there. <clears throat> they, were, they were struggling as well. Uh, the trajectory of Judah was not much better, but they had little moments where of repentance and moments of, of obedience, and, and, and that stayed. 
the judgment of God, but they too had prophets coming to them, warning them and warning them and warning them uh, against their idolatry. Now, Judah had the advantage, if we can call it that, of observing what happened to the north. Because eventually the Lord had enough of the warnings, warning after warning after warning after warning had come, and finally the Lord sent the Assyrians to the northern kingdom of Israel and obliterated them, dragged them out of Israel, scattered them over the the Middle Eastern world and took them as captives. Now I say that's an advantage to Judah because you saw... Okay, prophets came, and eventually the Lord said, that's enough. No more prophets. I say that's an advantage because, you know, we tend to think that if God doesn't strike us down now for the thing we're doing, well, I guess I guess he won't. You know, if I get away with it here, it seems like I'll always get away with it. That if we're not punished now, well, maybe we won't get punished. I mean, that's just the, the feeling that can settle in. It will be now or then as it always has been. It will just, it will remain the way it is now. And Judah at least could see, no, eventually the hammer fell. You know, the ax came down. And Israel was judged and taken off into judgment and into exile. And therefore you would think that that would have lit a fire under them and they would have said, okay, okay, we're, we're going to take the words of the prophets seriously and we're going to get on our faces and we're going to repent. But that was not the case. Though, again, they had little moments where, okay, there was a little bit of repentance and the judgment was stayed. <clears throat> but it would be another 200 years and finally judgment would fall upon the kingdom of Judah. And that judgment came around 586 uh, BC, not by the hand of the Assyrians. The Assyrians had had uh, since been conquered, and it came by the hand of the Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in and brought this judgment upon the southern kingdom of Judah. That Nebuchadnezzar, the the this Gentile pagan king, became the instrument of God's judgment upon his own people. It just added shame to the whole thing. And and here they were, utterly decimated, dragged out of the city also like the Assyrians did to the north, taken out, scattered and spread among the nations. The city was desolate, destroyed, and most of all, the temple itself. And this was the, this was the great horror of the thing, is that the temple itself was destroyed. The temple which was the treasure. It was the treasure of Judah. It was Emmanuel. It was God dwelling with his people. If there was anything special about Judah, it was the fact that the temple is there. God dwells with them. And the fact that these pagans would come in and tear it apart, if you will, leaving not one stone standing on another, was just unthinkable. It was just the worst calamity that you can imagine. And now the people are dragged out and they are scattered around the Babylonian Empire. This is the cause of the lament. And the lament is severe and deep as they watch the great city, the great promise of God. I mean, this this is the thing. 
that God promised their patriarchal fathers, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would have this land and God would dwell with them. And through that, all the nations would be blessed. And now to be in a place where that is all rolled back and not just rolled back, but disintegrates. And, and now you who, who once were the people and, and who were established are now scattered. You're not a people anymore. You're not a people. You're, you're just scattered in among the nations, losing your identity, losing that status was something that I, I even, even you can't feel the weight of this even by thinking of America's destruction. Like that would be utterly devastating if, if, if America just disintegrated and Americans were scattered. But that can't even get near this kind of lament. Because as beautiful as America is, and it's been a tremendous blessing, and it's a wonderful place, and it's it's our legacy, and it's our story, and all those kinds of things that has so much weight to us, it just doesn't compare to the weight that this land, that this place, that this kingdom had for the people of God in the Old Testament. It, it was their identity and their covenantal union with the God of heaven and earth. And now that had been torn asunder and dissolved and disintegrated for all intents and purposes as there they go out into these foreign lands. So that is the cause of the title of the book. The reason Jeremiah is a weeping prophet and if Jeremiah is writing this or whoever is writing this is weeping and just wetting the pages with tears as he writes, it's because of that. So that's what we are dealing with here. Now, again, we've got five sort of poems in which there is in the middle of this chaos that the, the author chooses to give it form, which is a beautiful, there's, there's something beautiful there beyond even my, my understanding, but we would need a good poet to share with us what just the, 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 the beauty of taking the horrible chaos of destruction and talking about it in this beautifully ordered way. Of, of poetry. But what we have in, in this first poem, in this first chapter, is basically a commentary on the, the problem itself. And as I see it, we have it broken down into a couple ways. First, we have the, the, poet, the poet's uh, a commentary on things. How lonely sits the city that was full of people, like a widow is she, who was great among the nations, the princes among the provinces, have become a slave. Just a tremendous undoing. This one who was a son. Right? We can think, you know, the, the, the metaphor here is going to be a woman, a queen, a princess, who is now just, just ravaged and laying on the side of the road with a soiled you know, gown. Uh, that's going to be the image there. But, but we can think of this in terms of Israel as a son as well, that Israel was the son of God. You know, in Exodus 4, he sends Moses into Israel. He says, you tell Pharaoh, let my son, my firstborn son, go. And now the son has been made a slave. Turned over to these oppressors and made a slave. The, the, the queen, the, this beautiful princess has become a slave. She's, she's been ravaged and just left a mess 
on the side of the road. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, okay, first first word of a problem here. What do, what do you mean lovers? Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her and they have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to, to the set feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. So here we have just this utter desolation. The city, we can, it just, the, the, again, the poet gives us this image of just an abandoned city, you know, just, just papers blowing around. There's no, you know, there, this should be a day of a feast, the poet's saying, but the roads of Zion grieve because normally it'd be bustling and the people of Israel would be coming forth to worship the Lord. And now on this day, they should be leading the people to, to worship nothing, nothing. Where are all the children? Where, where are all the people of God? They are gone. They're out among the nations, the persecutors having overtaken them. Now, again, embedded in there is a sign, like a little, a little, wait, what? You know, as, as you're reading along, it's just, okay, we get a sense of the problem because she, she looks to her lovers and there's no one to comfort her. Now, this is Israel. This is the queen. This is, if you will, the bride of God. In, in, you, you read through Ezekiel or you read through Hosea, these prophets talk about Israel as if she is to be the bride of God. God set his affection upon her and raised her up. Ezekiel 16, you know, I saw you when you were, when you were ravaged, a bloody mess. And I took you and I cleaned you up and I made you beautiful and I fed you the best foods and I put the best jewelry on you and I gave you a beautiful gown and I just did you up so beautiful and your, 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 your beauty went out among the nations and everybody just talked about how wonderful you were because I loved you and I made you my own. I entered into a covenant with you. I married you. You, you, you Israel, are my bride and I love you. But you, Israel, took all the good, this is still from Ezekiel 16, you took all the good things I gave you and you used them to woo other lovers. All the treasures I gave you, all the things I gave you to make you beautiful, you took them and used them as incentives to gain other lovers that you pursued instead of me. And then the Lord starts talking words of judgment that, again, are hard to hear. It's hard to hear God talk the way he talks to his bride in Ezekiel 16. Go read it. I encourage you to do so. It's the word of God. I remember preaching to Ezekiel, and, and, and it was rough. It was rough. Some of you even told me that. You were like, another sermon on Ezekiel. But I, I, it was hard, but, it, but it, was the, it was the word of the Lord. And I was skipping. I did every other, every other chapter in Ezekiel. It was hard and it was monotonous. The Lord again and again and again and again about what he was going to do to his people. It was very uncomfortable. But this is the nature of his judgment and the nature of Israel's sin. You look at it and you can't believe it. 
But as we've been talking about with the Corinthians, this is our nature. Right? We're, as Calvin said, we're idle factories. We'll create lovers. We're looking for lovers anywhere we can find them. We are, our eyes, because of our sin, are diverted away from, you know, the bridegroom. We're, we'll look for a substitute anywhere. We will take the gifts of God and rip them out of his hand and then go find lovers of our own with them. And that's the problem Israel has here. She has looked to the other nations for her aid. She's made alliances with them when they were told not to make any alliances, but to put all your trust in your bridegroom, put all your trust in your God. She didn't do that. She trusted in her wealth. She trusted in her the other nations. She made treaties with them. She worshiped their gods. You know, you know the stories. And so here she is in this time of desolation and among all her lovers, there's none to comfort her because they don't care two bits about her. They use her and they leave her a mess on the side of the road. That's the image literally that we have in this text. And the, 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 the prophet, poet speaks of it. He, he deals honestly with what's going on here. Verse five, her, adversar her adversaries have become the master her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. Right? The, 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 the prophet here, again, interprets the action for us. Yes, we feel bad for this woman. We feel bad for this city. But then he gives us the in interpretation. He gives us, hey, but let me fill you in here. This is because of her sin. It's because she went after these other lovers, if you will. And again, in verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore, she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. Okay, so the first thing we get here is the, the poet or the prophet's commentary on the situation, and it's, it's desperate. But then secondly, now we get, as we move down, a transition to Jerusalem uh, personified and crying out herself. Now she begins to speak. The, the prophet puts words in her mouth as, as a, a woman who represents the entire city. O Lord, behold my affliction. O Lord, behold my affliction. And this is essentially uh, the sermon title that I, I chose. Look, O Lord, down from verse 11. She says it again. You know, all her people sigh, they seek bread, they have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider. The, the, the holy city here then crying out to the Lord, representing the people, asking the Lord to look back at them. As if he has turned his gaze away from them. You know, my God, my God, Jesus says, stepping into the, the very shoes of, this, of his bride. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, here here the, the city takes up that cry. Lord, don't look away. Look here, Lord. See my affliction. You, know, you, think about the, you think about the blessing that comes to Israel through Aaron. You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. 
you know, may he, may he look at you and may the brightness of his face shine upon you. But this is not what Jerusalem feels. Jerusalem has just the opposite, feels the, the curse and the judgment of God. The Lord is not blessing them and keep them. He has literally forsaken them. He has turned them over. He has not kept them. He has let them go. And his face is not looking at them and it's not shining on them with beauty. His countenance is not lifted on them and smiling on them. They are seeing the frown of the judgment of God and they're feeling the darkness of a face that has turned away. And Lady Zion, Lady Jerusalem, is begging the Lord to look and not to forsake, but to see them in their affliction. And again, it's, don't forget, the, the cry here of Israel goes up to the Lord, and then the Lord gives it back to us as the word in the scriptures. Like Here, he gives the cry of Israel as a model to us. He, he, he wants us to read this. He wants us to hear about the judgment that came upon his people, but he also wants us to see what to do, what to do with it. That we turn and we cry out to the Lord. She's reached the, 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 the bottom here. Um, she asked the passers-by in verse 12, is it nothing to you all who pass by? Behold, she's, she's asking anyone to see. Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his anger. From above, he has sent fire into my bones and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back and has made me desolate and faint all the day. Give Jerusalem credit. At least she acknowledges that this is not because of big, strong, mighty Babylonians and just bad foreign policy you know, bad rule and government. Those things, of course, have something to do with it. They, they figure into the whole thing. But here in this poem, Lady Jerusalem is able to see through the, the penultimate things to the ultimate thing. The only reason the Babylonians are given this kind of authority, the only reason they're able to ravage the city and leave it desolate and tear down the temple of all things is because God himself is doing it. Nebuchadnezzar is a tool. Nebuchadnezzar and the army of the Babylonians are being used by the Lord, but it is the Lord. Make no mistake about it. It is the Lord who has done this, this hard thing and brought this affliction upon them. And so Lady Jerusalem and the people of God cry out, or at least the author of the Book of Lamentations wants the people to hear the personified city crying out so that they might hear and join the cry that they too might acknowledge this is the hand of the Lord and his judgment and do what they ought to do with it. And that is repent, which brings us down to verse 18, where this takes a good turn. This, this cry of questioning, this begging of the Lord, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? does not end with despair, but at least acknowledges uh, her own sin. In verse 18, the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. For I have rebelled against his commandment. Hear now all peoples and behold my sorrow. My virgins, my young men have gone into captivity. I have called for my lovers. That's honest. 
but they have deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. They're not even, they're not even doing their priestly duties. They're just trying to survive. There's no one to aid the city. But notice what she says. I have sinned and everyone else look and behold. A look at me and see my sorrow. This is a warning that she presents to us and to, of course, all the inhabitants of Israel, which now have been scattered, right? She's calling us to repent. And I think, again, just, just before we bring this thing, you know, land the plane on this, on this text, again, we have to, when we read these texts, it's very important, whether we're reading 1 Corinthians or whether we're reading Lamentations, it's very important that we not turn it into an academic study, that we don't say, okay, we, we, let's stick Israel in the lab table here and, and learn some things about them. Wow, they were really bad. They pursued uh, lovers. They, they were disobedient to God. Wow, that was a really bad judgment they got, being dragged off into exile and losing their... It, it cannot, it cannot, that's not what the, why this text is in the Bible. Paul says to the Corinthians, as we just recently studied, 1 Corinthians 10, not speaking of this text directly, but earlier ones, these things are given as examples to you, lest you fall into the same thing they did. We need to read this and be reminded that God will not abide with our sin forever. This has been centuries of prophets coming. This isn't a couple weeks. This has been generations of little, little judgments here and there, but not the big judgment that is to come. And now it's come, and it's just utter shock. They can't believe that it actually came. Well, hey, listen. Generations and generations have been preaching the coming of the Lord. And not just the coming of the Lord, but your own death. You're going to die. It is going to come. We can't imagine it. We can't imagine our own deaths. But it's coming. And therefore, we need to prepare. We need to, we need to view a text like this and hear Lady Jerusalem saying, don't look away, passersby. Look at my sorrow. Have you ever seen sorrow like this? You don't want to know this sorrow. And therefore, it is good and right. And that, that's why I prayed in, the, uh, in my opening prayer, may, may, these, may texts like this be like smelling salts <clears throat> under our nose. You know, to, and, I, and I, the line that comes uh, to my mind, it came to me in the prayer, was that hymn that uh, Mark Anderson used to, I know he introduced to us, Lord, with glowing heart I praise thee. I'd never heard that hymn before Mark uh, Anderson introduced it to us here. Lord with glowing heart, I praise thee. And, and in that hymn, uh, it says, it says, praise the grace. Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee. He's to sing to his own soul. No, pray, hey, soul, praise the grace whose threats alarm thee. See, that's why, that's why we say, thanks be to God after we read Lamentations. Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee, rouse thee from thy fatal ease. Praise the grace whose promise warm thee, praise the grace that whispered peace 
is the way it ends. It's both those things. But we need the grace whose threats alarms, alarm us. And therefore, it's important that we not, as passers-by of this text, not just walk by and go, yeesh. <laughs> but that we see it. And then we get on our knees and we confess our sins and we deal with them as the word of the Lord comes to us. Now, in the end of this, so she, she, she confesses her sins, but she's in, a, she's in a world of hurt. She's in a mess. And it's not going to go away quickly. It's not going to go away quickly. They're going to be out in exile for 70 years, and then because of their rebellion, it turns into 490 years. But in the end, she asks that the Lord would do unto her enemies as, as they have done unto her. That Lord, and, and in so doing, what she's praying for here is, Lord, would you set things right? I mean, the fact that the Babylonians are able to trample through our cities and tear down your temple, Lord, would you, would you set it right? Set things back to way, the way they ought to be where you do to your enemies what they've done to us. And I'm sure in that moment, nobody, none of her audience could even imagine how that would be possible. Right? Just how, how can this thing ever get restored? Now, in, in the history books, it will come because the Babylonians will get conquered. They will get conquered by the Persians. And the Persian king, King Cyrus, turns out to be another servant of the Lord, but a servant of the Lord for restoration. And he actually tells these exiled people, 70 years later, you can go back home and I'll actually give you money to rebuild your temple. It's like, wow, who saw that coming? Which makes the offense even more when the people go, nah, we don't want to. And that's when the Lord says, okay, you know what? Forget 70. It'll be 70 times 7, 490 years until I set things right. Which brings us to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and to our text in Hebrews 13. Because what we see in that Hebrews 13 text that I read for our word of exhortation, today, the reason I chose that as our word of exhortation is because the image there is of our Lord the bridegroom of this adulterous, fornicating, rebellious queen, this princess, this bride, who deserves more than even what she gets in this passage. But onto the scene comes the ultimate bridegroom, Jehovah himself, in the person of his son, to do what? To love his bride, to go out to rescue her, to go outside the gates of the city to the place of desolation and exile, to the place of destruction, and redeem her there. Again, where do you find the King of Kings, the Lord of glory? You know this because we've done enough Christmas stories and so forth and even Good Friday sermons that you don't find him where every other nation would find their king. He's not, he's not at first seated in the place of great exaltation. He, where is he? He's in the ash heap outside of town. He himself takes the burden of his bride and takes all the wrath and all the judgment that even this text is, is a pale reflection of the real judgment that this bride deserved and that Israel, that you and I deserve. 
But Jesus Christ comes to go out and rescue her by standing in her place and delivering her and redeeming her. He who knew no sin becomes sin so that we, the sinners, might become the righteousness of God. Now, again, Israel could never, I don't, there's, how could they even imagine? At least they, the, the, here, personified Lady Jerusalem, at least cries out, Lord, please do it. I have no idea what that even looks like. No, they didn't. But as Peter says, you and I have the privilege to see what the prophets longed to see. Do you know what this prophet would have given to see what you and I see? We have seen how the Lord has undone the mighty judgment and wrath of God, not by, not by sweeping it under the carpet, not by you know, God just going, you know what, actually, I take it all back. I won't do that. I'm not that mean. No, that's not how it happens, actually. The way it happens is he pours this out and more upon his son who stands in the place of his guilty bride and bears on his shoulders the full weight of her rebellion. Who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And indeed he is forsaken in that the full wrath of God and the weight of that wrath is poured out on him so that he might be raised to new life and in so doing, ransom and rescue his bride and set things right. And hence the, the, the reading in Revelation today, in Revelation 18, because there in Revelation, 8, Revelation 18, we're getting a vision of, and it's a vision, remember that, it's a vision of the end. But it's interesting that in that vision of the end, who's God going after? He's going after Babylon, of all things. He's going after Babylon. But Babylon here does not represent that city, though it, it points back to that. But you are either in Babylon, or you are in Zion. You're either of the bride or of the harlot. You're either with the beast or the lamb in the book of Revelation. We made that point many times. And those who are opposed to God, indeed, this the, the word of Lady Jerusalem in this text will be fulfilled. Babylon, get, go read that text again. The Lord brings this judgment upon all who stand with Babylon. The day is coming when he will avenge Nebuchadnezzar. He will bring his judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar and all who find themselves allied with Babylon. He will set things right. He loves his bride and he will rescue her. He will set all things right. And indeed, he has done it through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the book of Revelation, Revelation 18, he, he's saying, I will do this to Babylon. So as we make our way through Lamentations, I want to encourage you, one, gird up the loins of your mind, as, as Peter says. And I want to encourage you to make these five weeks, five weeks where we reckon with our own sin. That we don't become passers-by who look away or who kind of wince and go, oh, yeah, tough to be you. But who look at it and aren't, let our knees buckle a little bit. That we might do what we ought to do with it. Confess our sins and run outside the camp 
to the Lord Jesus Christ, as the author of Hebrews tells us, that we might suffer with him, that we might cling to him, that we might fill our lips with praise for him in recognizing the deliverance that he has wrought, that we might be strengthened to go through our periods of affliction. So I want to encourage you over these weeks not to look away, but rather to repent and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are no more pure in and of ourselves than Israel. While it doesn't seem so obvious and we would never say it this way, we have many lovers other than you that we continue to woo and flirt with and use your blessings as means of satisfying. We ask your forgiveness. Open our eyes that we might see our ways, that we might turn from them. May we not avert our gaze from the suffering of Judah in this book, but indeed, Father, may it sober us that we might recognize the weight of our sin, that we might recognize the severity, the holy severity of your just wrath, but also, Heavenly Father, that we might recognize what is the height and depth and width and breadth of your love, of the extent that your Son, our Lord, our Bridegroom, even Jesus Christ, went to to redeem us. And may our lips forever sing your praise and his praise. For we ask this and pray it in his name. Amen.